Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science. In the studio with me is my good buddy, Chris KP. Good morning, sir. Oh, hello. How are you? How are you? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm a little scratchy this morning, but, uh, <laughs> but it, feel, it feels good. It's a good. This is a good place to be when you're feeling a little bit, uh, you know, yes. weather beaten. Yes. Uh, for the listeners out there, Chris KP is admitted to having a fun, nice house. I enjoyed mine. <laughs> He's a little rough this morning. It's been a long time since I've seen that. <laughs> On the line with us, we've got uh, Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. And you're a little scratchy too, I hear, for different Look, reasons. not too bad, but, you know, like just playing it safe like we all should in these, you know, times that we find ourselves in. So Yes, we appreciate you not coming into the studio, uh, just in case, <laughs> you never know. But uh, the giant HEPA filter that sits behind me has only got so much juice in the tank and uh, <laughs> don't want to overtax it. It's, right now it's dealing with Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a big job. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and Gracie's on the line all the way from Texas. How are you going, Gracie? Yes, good. How are you? Good. Have you survived? I mean, you guys have had some little election thing happening there. Is it back to normal? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just don't get me started on it. Yeah. It just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got one coming up next weekend, I think. I don't know. I, uh, I suspect it's on, but I don't know. Is it next weekend, Ewan? I think it's next weekend. Weekend after, isn't it? Weekend after? I don't know. It's close. It's, yeah, sneaking up. Well, we can't have it until we get the COVID numbers up. We want to make sure they're up as high as possible before we put everyone back in those confined spaces to vote. So <laughs> let's do it. Let's be sensible. Anyway, we should get into some news because we've got some great guests uh, coming into the uh, show. I was going to say studio, but they're not all in the studio. We have one coming in talking about a new stroke website, a recovery website, which is um, excellent. Actually, I had a look at that this morning. It looks really amazing. And we've also got a guest coming all the way in from Norfolk Island mm. to talk about some of the environmental programs that are going on over there which will be fascinating but let's start off with some news from you Ewan what have you got for us I'm very excited about your news piece this morning it looked great (laughs) yeah I wish uh, Chris could introduce it by singing Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid (laughs) but I don't know if he's up for that but uh, look I want to talk about um, our favorite group of animals or at least one of the most amazing group of animals I think on the planet which is the cephalopods and that includes of course squid and cuttlefish but also octopus and this uh, amazing um, piece of research is um, out of the University of Sydney um, by Professor Godfrey Smith and colleagues. And what they found is that <coughs> octopus are basically throwing things. And you might think, well, throwing things is actually not that interesting. But it turns out that throwing things is actually incredibly rare in the animal kingdom. You, you just don't see other animals picking many things up and throwing them for whatever reason. And so... They were studying octopus uh, in Jarvis Bay in New South Wales and they had about 20-odd hours of footage. And what they managed to do was to actually look at what they were throwing and under what context they were throwing things. And basically they were throwing things like silt and shells and so forth. And some of the time uh, what they're basically doing is cleaning out where they live. So they sort of live in and around these shells and rocky areas and they're basically cleaning out where they live. But it turns out that actually they're not just cleaning out, uh, you know, the house, if you like, a bit of spring cleaning. 
they're actually, in some cases, we think potentially being aggressive towards other octopus. And you can tell when octopus are being aggressive in some species because they actually darken themselves. So for those of you who know octopus and squid and so forth, they have these amazing abilities to change colour um, using these uh, basically um, structures called chromatophores. And that actually changes their appearance and colour incredibly rapidly. So if you ever want to um, jump on YouTube and just have a look at some of that, it's, it's staggering stuff. But um, they looked at who was doing the throwing as well, males and females. Turns out, actually, that females throw things more often than the males do. So I'm not sure what we read into that. And, in fact, 66% of all the throws they recorded were by two females, so particularly cranky females, it turns out. And not only were they throwing things, in uh, many cases, about 33% of throws, they're actually hitting their targets. Mm, nice. And so, yeah. Was the target the other female that, or, or a male octopus nearby? So it, in, it was, in some cases it was another female, but in other cases it was males and they hypothesised in those cases they were basically telling the males to bugger off. The males were harassing them and yeah, they were just saying, enough. I'm not interested, so please go away. So they'd just pick um, up a giant boulder and hurl it or eight boulders. And, <laughs> and they could hypothesise that this was a deliberate act because not only... As I said, in many cases, was the octopus darkened when undergoing throwing, but also they were deliberately using their arms in a different way than they would normally, and they were picking up silt, so mm. de deliberately picking up silt and really targeting. So for those of you who know, octopus have got arms and they've got a siphon which they can push water through really quickly, like a jet propulsion kind of system. So they can basically line up their target and <laughs> fire all this stuff out really, really quickly yeah, and they were hitting other individuals. So they, again, in this study, they were saying that they don't know, of course, exactly why they're doing it, but they hypothesise in some cases it's actually defending their territory and saying, mm. this is my patch, leave me alone. But in other cases, it may be females saying to the males, look, you know what, I'm not interested, so please go away. Yep. And if you don't, I'm going to throw silt all over you. So um, just a really fascinating study. And as I said before, um, you know, Picking up things and throwing them is incredibly rare, actually, for animals. In most cases, it's only found in social mammals, of course, mm. including us. Um, and you can also imagine that throwing things underwater, it's even Not harder. Not easy, yeah. <laughs> so, so they're clearly wanting to do this for a reason. So I think, you know, I think we all love octopus. They're just these incredible yeah. animals, highly intelligent, and, you know, the more we learn about them, the more fascinating they are. I love it. Thanks, you. And, and uh, I think on that note, I'm going to start a new campaign. Uh, so anyone listening from the Real Children's Hospital, I love the fish tank. Get those fish out of there and fill it with octopus <laughs> because I think if you could get some of those octopus thrown at each other, that would be endlessly amusing for sick kids and families. Yeah, we can start up cameras like they've got with the peregrine yep. falcons, right? People would love it. Absolutely. So. Get the fish out and get the octopus in. <laughs> this is my new campaign for 2023. I reckon, I reckon leave the fish in and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, leave the fish in, yeah. That could be, that could be fun too. Yeah. Small rodents, whatever. They, whatever's about, hey, they've, they've, they've got... Uh, crabs. Crabs is what they love. There's another element yeah. they've got on site there. I don't know how they'd interact with the octopuses. The meerkats, <laughs> you know, that could be fun. Uh, Gracie, what have you got for us for news? Yes, so I was going to say that I'm going to have to borrow that silt throwing strategy with some unwanted male attention that's going to be my next, <laughs> my next move. carry a bag of silt with you or a bag of sand yeah just throw yeah, sand exactly. in people's eyes that's great yeah exactly i'll just say octopuses do it so you know it's it's normal 
Um, but yeah, anyway, so uh, yeah, I, I found a new study that came out a few weeks ago in current biology that actually showed uh, potentially a new treatment that might help reduce nightmares. Oh. So yeah, so typically to reduce nightmares, um, therapists can use something called image rehearsal therapy. So this is when you imagine the nightmare that you had, but you imagine a positive ending for the nightmare. Um, so this doesn't work actually for about a third of people they found in previous research. So in this study, researchers used a new learning technique called targeted memory reactivation. So this is where you actually focus on learning something and a sound plays as you're learning it. And then the same sound is played while you're sleeping. Hmm. So this study basically randomized, uh, this was a small study pilot study is about 36 people. So they randomized these people into two groups. So in one group, they remembered their nightmare and made up a positive ending for it in silence. So I'm going to call this the silence group. And then the other half did the same thing, but a short piano chord played every 10 seconds for about five minutes. And then while they slept, they wore like a headset basically that played the same sound while they were sleeping. Um, and so both groups before the study started recorded an average of about three nightmares per week. But the number of nightmares in the silent group went down to one per week, and in the piano chord group went down to nearly zero, so 0.2 mm. per week. Um, and again, this was a short study. It was only over two weeks. Um, so they're going to test it you know, for longer periods of time and in more people. That sounds really great. I remember once I used to have nightmares shortly after seeing the film Aliens. You can guess what that was about. <laughs> and the imagine a good ending to that. There's no good ending to that. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's the nuke them from orbit ending. But other than that, for me, in the nightmare, there was no good ending from that. It was, um, there was no, so I like this idea. This might work better. Yeah. Haven't had that nightmare in a few weeks, though, so I'm okay. Yeah. It's been hanging around since I was 15. Chris KP? I think it's um, one of the go-to happy endings is the song and dance number. <laughs> Works with pretty much any scenario. Any because always there's some agent of horror in the in the yeah, nightmare. Yeah, because it was in Spaceballs, wasn't it? Exactly. Yes, yes it's totally true. Doable. Yeah. God, my eighties movie. You know, this is why I can't remember people's names because <laughs> I've got all this stuff in there that they don't need. It's taking a valuable space. It's valuable right. space. That's okay. I yeah. Understand. Anyway. Uh, Look, I wanted to talk about. I wanted to go back in time a little bit, quite a long way back in time, uh, back to the uh, the Devonian period, which is we're talking three hundred plus million years ago, so a long time ago. One of the things that is hard to to picture, or at least easy to forget, is that the world looked really different then, in really quite fundamental ways. Uh, one one of the big fundamental ways is that there weren't a lot of trees. Hmm. So even in the city, you, you used to seeing trees, like hmm. you know, significant, yeah, yeah. tall yep. you know, things. They, weren't, they, were, they were in the process of evolving during this time, so there weren't a lot of them around. What's interesting is this study that, um, that I'm referring to has basically suggested that the evolution of tree roots may have led to significant extinction events. All right. Because... Prior to this, there were plants. You know, they, mm -hmm. were, they would suck up nutrients and they'd, yep. you know... Lichens and yeah. all sorts of stuff. But they were quite shallow, yep. comparatively shallow. But when the trees started developing roots and thrusting them down, they got a lot more nutrient was inside the tree now. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, meant, you know, when the tree died, all those nutrients sort of just washed back into the system. It literally washed into the ocean, like got into the water table, into the oceans, and would, uh, would cause huge algal blooms, right. which wipes out all the oxygen, so you get these massive extinction events. Interesting. What's, what's great about this story is, and so they, they, there's cycles of this, what's really interesting is if you go back again to what I said at the top, which is 300 plus million years ago, you go, how, what are they seeing? How are they finding this? What they're seeing is that they're actually detecting phosphorus levels in rock. 
And phosphorus, of course, is in all life. And so what they're, yeah, what they're essentially saying is we can actually trace dry and wet periods. We can, hmm. we can time those out. And the dry periods is when the trees are dying, which is when they're releasing all those nutrients back into the system. And they can, they can basically tack that. They can, they can trace the timing of that to, yeah, another big extinction event. And there's a whole bunch of them. So, yeah, using rocks to trace nutrient um, outlay that times with the evolution of tree roots and was actually causing extinction events. It's amazing. There's there's so many of these connectivities that we're getting to at the moment. I, mm. I need a system similar to the one in Minority Report where I can sort of <laughs> sift sift through it in three dimensions to see dimensions. what happened, you know, yeah, over, over various geological yeah. timescales because, you know, some of these are just extraordinary when you look mm. at some of these um, volcanic and, and seismic activities and various yes. um, things over various changes. times, atmospheric changes and cycles. And, of course, we find it really hard to understand these cycles because they occur over hundreds of millions of that's years exactly or right. longer. And from our perspective, that's like, whoa, uh, I can, I can handle yeah. weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, maybe, maybe a decade <laughs> and a push. But you know, beyond that, I'm kind of, str- I'm kind of struggling yeah. to understand those timeframes. And I think for most people, even when you go and look at a, a, a canyon or something mm. and someone says to you, water made it. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> hang on, right. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But over those time frames, of course, you know, we know how, how readily that can occur and, and even just watching water flows around the areas of a beach and causing little canyons in sand, you can say, okay, if that can happen in minutes, maybe yeah, this true, can happen in, in, you know, in hundreds of thousands of years and, yes. and we can sort of put those together. But some of these time frames are extraordinarily yeah. Long and I, I, the one I always come back to is the the dinosaurs and people say you know gonna, it's, yes they did go extinct but boy were they going well for a <laughs> oh, long period yes. of time yeah you know, hundreds of millions of years how long have we been doing well <laughs> not even close well if we don't count the last few years because I don't um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a long period you know I mean we we kind of started screwing things up a couple hundred years ago really well um, yeah. but you know hu- humans not like di- dinosaurs better. I I would tend to agree. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we should take a break. Hopefully, we will have our next guest on the line shortly, all the way from Norfolk Island. Uh, You're listening to Einstein and Go Go on 3 Triple R. We'll be back shortly after some tunes. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. On the line with us now, all the way from Norfolk Island, is Nicola Jorgensen, who is a master's student from the University of Sydney and one of her supervisors is from the Australian Museum. Nicola, welcome. How are you? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very well. Thank you. It's great to uh, talk to you. Now, not many PhD students we get on the, or master students even, we get on the show uh, are in these far-flung Australian islands. Um, how many people are there on Norfolk Island at a given time? What's the sort of population there? Yeah, it's uh, I'm not sure the exact number, but I think it's about 2,000, around 2,000 people. Right. So it's a fairly... Small community, I suppose you've got, to, you've got to behave when it's a small community. Everyone gets to know you pretty pretty quickly. How long have you been over there? Uh, this trip, I've, uh, I'm just hitting three weeks now, um, but uh, I grew up here, so I, I come back fairly regularly. Oh, fantastic. Now, I, I suppose for people who don't know where Norfolk Island is, it's uh, about 1,700 kilometers northeast of sydney so not that far away towards numia um and it's small like i i know when i've looked it up on the map you've got to really zoom in because it's um it's a small island yeah. isn't it and what yeah. about about how big is it like size wise 
Yeah, it's uh, about eight kilometers by five kilometers. So right. if you wanted to, you could walk around in a day. Yeah, no problem at all. Now you're you're there, of course, as part of a, a essentially a survey mission, which is pretty substantial. I mean, this is one of the things that you know when we hear about this, we think, "Geez, have we not already done this?" Because it seems so important for conservation. But you're there actually part of the the team that's looking at getting an accurate picture of the sort of endemic flora and stuff that's that's there. So tell us a bit about that survey. What's the goal, and how long is it? How long is it going to take? Yeah, so the full uh, uh, museum expedition, I believe, is going to run over three or four years um, with sort of different phases each year uh, of what they're going to be investigating. So uh, this year it was uh, a lot of terrestrial surveys looking at plant life and um, sort of insects and mammals uh, that are here on Norfolk Island. And sort of the part that I was involved with was actually the archaeology so the cultural sort of side yeah. side of that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, how much how much of the of that is there on as you say it's like 8 8 k's by 5 k's. It's not a huge space. How much is there and how much is it is sort of immediately obvious versus you've got to kind of dig and search for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's people have searched for for years and decades really to look for more of the uh evidence of the Polynesian settlement that was mm. uh, first here on Norfolk Island. So the, the Polynesians were here sort of between uh, around 1200 and 1400 AD, um, so not, not too long ago. But uh, there's, yeah, really um, only been one settlement site found on the island, on the island's south coast and, and sort of until recently. And, yeah, finding evidence of that is, yeah, surprisingly difficult. Um, there's just sort of stuff will just pop up, you know, with no rhyme or reason to when uh, just takes the right conditions for something to appear, really. Yeah. And how active is the process of the search there? You know, are you sort of, you know, I often see those images of people sort of marking out sections of, um, you know, Egypt and then, you know, layer by layer just taking them down. <laughs> and so is is that part of what you're doing or is the environment not conducive to that sort of um, that sort of activity? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was actually very fortunate in that uh, at the start of the kind of master's project when I was uh, developing the idea of what I wanted to do, that was potentially going to be a part of it, just a lot of surveying and looking everywhere. Um, but I came over for a bit of a scoping trip before I started a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, and met a local man called Snowy Tavener who had actually, uh, yeah, I identified something already. So it was felt really handed to me, which was a real pleasure. Oh, that's pretty nice. And with, with the sort of overall work there that's done in that sort of archaeological sense, is it all on land or is part of it sort of in the surrounding sort of shallows? Uh, all land-based, at least at the moment. Yeah, um, a lot of the sort of heritage work that's done here is actually on the like colonial period. So there's some beautiful um, examples of convict architecture here. Um, yeah, that's kind of a lot of what dominates the heritage field mm. here, just because there was so little uh, identified for the Polynesian um, period. Yep. So uh, yeah, all, all land-based. Really. Yeah. yeah. Now, in, in terms of the environmental stuff, you know, and, and the various, uh, I guess, animal and plant life and so forth and insects, the whole lot there, um, how, how diverse is that on Norfolk Island? 
Yeah, I'm not sort of too familiar with that side of thing, but I know there is an incredible diversity here and, and a huge amount of endemic species that have, yeah, little has been sort of researched on them before. So it's a really unique place with huge potential for sort of all sorts of natural science. Yeah. And are you seeing things changing there? I mean, one of the things we find with many, many of the sort of island locations around the world is as our climate shifts, you know, they're the ones that are seeing it first. And in, and in many cases, you know, with the low-lying islands, you know, they're really being devastated. You know, you've, you've obviously been there many times over, over a period of, of, of years. And are you seeing shifts in what things are like there on the island? Yeah, I guess in terms of sea level, not so much, but uh, I was really pleasantly surprised this trip. I've sort of been back every year for the last three years and it's been the last two years have been so, so dry that all the, you know, waterways aren't running, that it just, uh, the grass is brown. Um, but I think with the amount of rain that's been had recently in the last couple of years that it's just phenomenally green at the moment and waterways running that haven't run in you know 40 years that's mm. been really incredible to see yeah no that's cool stuff now give us a bit of an insight when you're actually uh, you know out in the field doing the archaeological work i mean what are the what are the tools that you take out with you is it all paint brushes and little scrapers what, what are we talking about to do that sort of work Yeah, definitely. Those two are definitely kind of the archaeologist's key uh, key tool set, really. A, a trowel is the number one, uh, definitely a trowel. Um, and then, yeah, you just uh, sometimes you have a shovel. Uh, it depends kind of what you're doing. But for this one, we, we excavated very, very carefully. So we were using very small small tools, just trowel and brush, uh, really, to, to dig down. Yeah. And how far down do you go? Uh, we stopped at 35 centimetres. Um, so not too deep, but uh, it did take us about four days because we, we were going pretty slow and it was dense material to get through. Yeah. And with the, um, with the sort of the Polynesian aspect there and so forth and, and that group of people, I mean, what's the sort of cultural aspect of what you're doing? I mean, we, we've kind of been pretty bad at this in Australia over a long period of time. I mean, what, how does that feel at Norfolk? What is, you know, what is the process for you, like, um, in terms of artifacts and where they go and how they're, you know, how they're addressed culturally? What, what sort of things do you do there in that space? Yeah, yeah, it's been really special, uh, this project, I think. So um, what, what we've done is excavated a, a new site that's um, come up in the Norfolk Island National Park um, and it's sort of at the opposite end of the island from the only other Polynesian site that's been identified. So it's really kind of opening up the whole island now to that potential of Polynesian activity. So when we, uh, when we excavated, uh, we had... Um, local volunteers come up with this because there's a very strong uh, Polynesian community here on Norfolk Island, not sort of directly related to the Polynesians that were here originally, but um, with that Polynesian ancestry. So we had uh, a man called Snowy Taverner who first identified the site. Um, he came up with this and his childhood friend, uh, Arthur Evans, they were up there every day with us. And to have have that community with that Polynesian connection was just really incredible it was quite a like an emotional experience when we started sort of bringing up mm. the first material that we just had to remind ourselves to just like take a moment and appreciate it for what it was because there's not there's not a lot known about the original polynesian 
occupation here on Norfolk Island. So any of that like connection that can be brought forward is really important for the community to kind of, you know, bolster what they knew, you know, all along is that the, this is a strong Polynesian island. And, um, yeah, to have them up there, there with us has been incredible and to hear the feedback that people are really, like, appreciating this information coming up. They'd love to do more. They'd love to know more. Um, they're looking at the moment for the, the best keeping place for the artefacts where they could go on display. So um, I've handed those back to the Norfolk Island National Park and from there they'll do a community consultation, um, sort of similar to what happens in Australia, to to work out, yeah, with community, where's the best place for them to go from there? Yeah, oh, look, it's fascinating to hear that, and I'm really pleased to hear that you know you're getting such amazing insights from from the the sort of locals there, because I think that's where the the context for the work for you, you know, as a, as a student coming through, you know, it adds so much of a richness to the work that you're doing and making it, um, you know, something that you really obviously want to do later in life. So um, just before you go, what's what's next? Um, you know, you'll obviously be heading away from Norfolk Island at some stage. What's next and, and where do you want to sort of go long term? Yeah, well, I guess the next big thing for me is really completing the thesis. I've got to, I've got to write the thing now. I can't yep. have too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And then after that, is it uh, is all Indiana Jones sort of stuff, or is it you know, is there a, is there another site you want to go to? Yeah, yeah, I've got the I've got the hat. I just need the whip now. But um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more there's a lot more definitely to be to be tapped here on Norfolk sort of archaeologically and just um, you know providing some educational material as well for the community because they're, they're the ones who will, who will find it so yeah. um, that's kind of the goal great well look thanks so much for chatting to us Nicola I really appreciate you doing this uh, from one of the far-flung islands that Australia still holds some claim over I guess um, and a huge thank you to the Australian Museum for setting up this interview but uh, good luck with the masters uh, sounds like you've got some amazing material there to go into it and it should be uh, all done and dusted with no problems whatsoever so you have a good sunday and um good luck with the ongoing work thank you so much thank you folks uh that was uh, nicola jorgensen from the university of sydney all the way from norfolk island um doing some great work there with um archaeologists mm. it, it always annoys me i didn't do it and and the thing when you when you were asking about um yeah about the tools of the trade you kind of half expect them to go don't be ridiculous it's a cliche but yeah no, no that's totally <laughs> that's spot actually, on man. Uh, no, that's right. yeah look I, I once was traveling and had the opportunity to do a um uh well I thought I had the opportunity to do an archaeological dig with a, a group in the Middle East nice. and uh, it was sort of a, I can't remember the exact dates but it was like I was arriving at the end of May. And it wasn't available until mid-June. Oh, <laughs> and I was no, like, what? No. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, there's some environmental conditions that make it dangerous. I'm like, don't worry about that. So I'm happy to crawl into <laughs> small in holes. The, in the face of your <laughs> <day>. <laughs> Laugh in the face of your, your risk assessment. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was um, one of those things. But, uh, yeah, I've always thought that stuff is incredibly fascinating, especially, um, yeah. you know, when you think of they're only going down 35 centimetres yeah. and finding all this rich material from the past. So, anyway. Mm. All right, uh, we're geeking out over archaeology. <laughs> That's fine. No shame. We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, here's some important station announcements, and when we come back, we'll have a guest live in the studio with us. We'll be back in a moment. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, it's Einstein and Gago. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dina Pogrebnoy. 
I think I might have got it right this time. Dean is a PhD student from the School of Health Sciences at the University of Newcastle. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's good to have you back. You were part of one of our 20 and 20 crowds. I can't believe you came back. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. I can't believe you invited me again. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the other way around. I think people get one dose and they're like, hey, yeah. when I come back to that. Uh, Anyway, it's good to have you back in the studio. How's your PhD going? Uh, it's going really well, thank you. Um, we've had a really exciting uh, two years and a very busy two years. I'm yeah. doing it part-time, uh, but, yeah, it sort of felt like full-time uh, steam ahead. But uh, but it's been really exciting, and what we've been able to produce has been really good. Yeah. Now, I'm going to point out the obvious here, but University of Newcastle... Is not in Melbourne, <laughs> yes. Is not in Melbourne. <laughs> that is true. How's, look- that, how's that working? Uh, it, it's working really well. Uh, the project has been able to be done all online and uh, I think, you know, with COVID we've gotten used to being able to do things online so yeah. it really hasn't slowed me down, which has been yeah. great. Oh, that's fabulous because I know, you know, there's been a lot of PhD students have been heavily affected, mainly the lab-based ones to be fair, um, you know, which is understandable. But um, I think it, it has opened up the possibilities of people doing PhDs in different places. I mean, Chris, I know, is thinking of doing one at Oxford. <laughs> they haven't, uh, haven't accepted. Did you get? No. <laughs> Could happen. But um, your work is—I mean, I find your work is fascinating because it's probably how you got through the pitch, the twenty and twenty program in the first instance. But you work in the area of stroke. Yep. Give us a bit of an idea at the moment how we deal with stroke in terms of recovery, because often you know we hear about people having strokes. We've talked a lot about the the amazing stroke ambulance that's available, you know, to very few people, but available in Victoria as a world first as extraordinary piece of technology. And I think we are now very good if we can get to people fast enough in working out which of the two options to go down with a stroke and, you know, how to, you know, how to deal with as best as possible in the medical sense. But post-stroke, where do we stand? Yeah, Shane, and that's the real challenge. Uh, so what we find is the acute care for people who've had a stroke is, is quite good. Those mm-hmm. that uh, get to the hospital in time and are able to receive the care that's available um, receive really good care. But I guess what happens afterwards is uh, stroke is not really treated as a lifelong condition uh, at this stage. And, and this is where the real gap is, we feel, and, and where the work that we're doing, we feel, is quite impactful. So people after stroke, um, they recover enough to go home, and often that means they're able to uh, move around a bit and and take Mm. care of themselves or have the right supports available at home. They get to go home, they receive some uh, limited rehab in the home or they attend a a centre if if they can get to one. Um, And then shortly after that, they're sort of let loose to kind of just deal with all the after effects um, on their own. So there's no real structured programs for um, both secondary stroke prevention, but also living life well after stroke that are currently available. Yeah. I mean, that seems absolutely baffling to me when you, when you hear that. So if I have a if I have a car accident and I yep. have a, a a brain injury of some type, yep. I have access to all sorts of recovery for a support. very long time. For a very long time, it's Correct. seen as a chronic a chronic condition essentially. Correct. Um, and depending on the severity, I'll have you know varying degrees of support right correct yep and similar for cardiac conditions or lung conditions there's all sorts of really structured support available but there isn't such um supports available for survivors of stroke you know i love the importance of the heart Mm. and the lungs yep but this is the brain yep like it's the most important part of our body i mean right chris yeah, you, theory, you had yeah. a weird look on your face. But no, no, I'm, I'm just trying to engage mine. Um, yeah, I was. I was just wondering if that if that lack of 
um, systemic or instinctive support. Mm. Is that is that because everything looks fine now? Uh, in theory, you, you could say it looks fine enough in that uh, I think stroke has always been approached as an acute condition, so it's something that yeah. happens, and once it's mm. medically dealt with, um, you're right to keep going. Well, whereas... that's, that's very human, isn't it? I've got a problem and I've fixed a problem. Correct. Yeah, because mm. I can see that it's fixed, right? As in a way, to being fixed. Yeah, the bits that you can see, yeah. you can argue they're fixed, but there's a yeah. lot about um, post-stroke recovery that's hard to see as well. But I think in, in medicine, this is one of the big problems we have at the moment, which is, you know, when, when I talk about comprehensive managed care, and I bring this term up a lot whenever I'm in a bad clinical situation, um, we, we find that often, you know, the, the special services that deal with stroke on the day mm-hmm. and not the services that you need post in the recovery period and that connectivity uh, you know if you're really lucky you'll have a a gp and i say really lucky here Mm. because a lot of people are you know going through what i would call a drive-through clinic these days where you see a different different gp Mm. on various occasions some of us are lucky enough to have a gp we see often Um, but that's not everyone and so if you don't have that care management really controlled then that specialist service you may have seen in hospital is not going to give you physiotherapy or psychological support or any of that, are they? That won't happen. Yeah, and and look, you know, we're talking about the lucky people who live in metro area and Mm. even they are not receiving the right level of support. I mean, if you feel, if you think about people that are living in rural areas, uh, they get even less than than the very little that is available to the rest of the stroke community. So it's it's a real issue and, and one that needs to be addressed to help people after stroke Yep. live their best life now i i'm not sure i want the answer to this but if we're looking sort of post 60 i'm not sure where the numbers are sort mm-hmm. of easiest to grab out of your brain but you know post 60 post 70 what's the incidence sort of stroke uh it doesn't discriminate i think is the real answer here um i've in my line of work i've seen people in their 30s mm-hmm. who have had a stroke um yep. one of the ladies who i've had the privilege of working with um to do with my project was 13 when she had a stroke yep. Yep. um and then i've had people um ranging from that age right up through to 60 70 80 yeah, there was a PhD student who came through a few years after me, actually, in my lab, and he'd had a stroke, I think, when he was like 12 or 13, and wow. he'd recovered pretty well, but yep. he, he had some, you know, walking challenges. Yep. Um, you know, that was the big effect for him. One side of his body was pretty badly affected and never recovered from that completely. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's age indifferent to to some degree essentially and also the the severity of the stroke um really can vary so you can have a very mild stroke where you recover mostly well at least what people can see and then you can have the real obvious severe deficits that impact you both physically as well as emotionally and then there's the hidden things like fatigue um and energy depletion and i could go on forever um Mm. but but there's Mm. lots and lots of post-stroke effects that really impact people's lives after stroke yeah so all this stuff sitting there, nothing's helping. Yeah. Dina comes in. To oh, the not, not, not just and Dina. And team. And team. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so it's a big day tomorrow because you're um, essentially launching uh, a new website. Tell us all about that. Yeah, thanks, Shane. So we, we've been working, and when I say we, it's, it's a very, very big team, and I want that to be acknowledged. Um, so this work started before I came on board, and there was a, a telehealth trial looking at resources that had been designed with stroke survivors, both um, in physical activity, so moving more, as well as 
eating a healthy diet and that's yep. um, eating well. Uh, so this team has trialled this particular telehealth program and there's some really encouraging early results that had led us to think, what else can we do? And so what we've gone ahead to do is we've designed a website and we've designed that with stroke survivors from the very beginning as well. And what this website does is it gives stroke survivors practical resources and options to follow along to exercise videos, um, learn about ways to eat well after stroke, hear practical tips from stroke survivors about how they've incorporated physical activity into daily life, um, how they've been able to cook one-handed, how they've managed to uh, overcome fatigue and some real practical things that they can do in order to live their very best life after stroke. Yeah, look, I think, you know, one of the things you said there that really... You know, sticks with me a bit, and some listeners of the show know. You know, my father had a stroke last year, and you know there were consequences of that, and it's been a difficult time. And yeah. you know, we're we're doing well, but a difficult time. But we didn't have these resources, and yeah. and so I very much hear what you're saying about the lack of resources. But for one thing, I suspect a lot of people being able to see some of these videos from actual stroke survivors makes them feel a lot less alone. Absolutely, and and really, uh, the stroke survivors that are featured on the website are the secret source to mm. what we hope will be the success uh, of. Of, of this piece of work. It's not uh, allied health professionals sort of preaching, I suppose, yeah. about what should be done. It's yeah. real stroke survivors sharing their story about what they have done to live their best life. And, and it comes from a very motivating, empowering perspective. So it, it, there's no focus on what you shouldn't do. There's really a focus on, on what you can do and, and ways in which you can do it. Yeah, one of the things that I find very problematic with a lot of health resources is they're always about fixing you. Mm. They're either about fixing you or gas lighting you and I tend to fall into those two categories half the time I think for a lot of people it's like well no you can't fix this this is yep. not going away yep. but here is here is a way to optimize what you can get out of it you know the, you know, for a very long period of time for many people. You know, this could be decades, half their life. Yeah, and for a lot of people that we've spoken with, they talk about the fact that their life has forever changed after stroke. And mm. some of the things that we've tried to do is encourage survivors of stroke to share how they've they've changed their life a little bit to still have meaning in their life and to find things that they can still enjoy after stroke. So all of these resources are available and all these stories are, are shared on our website that's yep. um, launching tomorrow. Now, the website is... I rebound one word I rebound yes. dot org dot au. yeah or I rebound dot enable me dot org dot au. both of those will take you through but the other thing that um, you can do is because of our strong partnership with the stroke foundation and HMRI <laughs> the website is actually uh, on the stroke foundation website so if you go into the stroke foundation website you click on the bright orange enable me button yep. on the left hand side there will be a button for I rebound and that will take you through as well Excellent. so there are multiple multiple ways to get there. Yep. Well, I think um, it's one of those things where, you know, you showed me, walked me through it before the show today, and I'm a big big one of saying, oh, a website. Thanks so much. But this is actually a really good, well-laid-out website with, with, like, one of the things I think in this situation people want is some really good videos with people talking you through what's going on and yep. so forth. And there seems to be an abundance of that on the site. And it's well laid out in terms of eat well, move yeah. more. Hints and hacks. I just, I honestly just, just opened it up and just ran my thumb up the uh, up the phone and saw food. 
<laughs> it's, it's recipes. There yeah. are not what I expected. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. there's step by step recipes on there as well. So, um, and with an image associated with this step, it really we've put in a lot of effort in trying to make it as user friendly. Um, we've reduced the clutter, um, and we've really engaged with the stroke community to help us do that from the very early uh, part of the design phase as well. Um, yep. and, and really, because we wanted it to be a resource that's fit for purpose, we yep. wanted it to be something that stroke survivors would uh, look at and feel like they can use yeah well excellent congratulations to you and the team it's great that this is there hopefully we'll get a lot of support because as we say there's not a lot out there um and there's someone who has a family member in that situation i can you know speak to that that you know it was kind of like there's the door good luck um back to you gp you know and and look gps are great and they're very helpful but you know that's not the whole story so there has to be other resources so dina um good luck with it i know it's launching tomorrow folks it's irebound.org.au i think if they just google irebound i'm sure they will find that pretty easily great to have you back in again thank Um, you so much last time we only gave you 60 seconds so no this this has been um, a privilege and thank you so much for letting us share our work and and we hope the stroke community really finds it as beneficial as we hope it will be absolutely our pleasure to have you in and to promote, promote this important work thanks so much tina thanks shane Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, Gracie's going to run us through some important stuff all the way from Texas. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, folks. Uh, we're in the last 12 minutes of Einstein and Gogo. And uh, Gracie's, Gracie and you are on the line. And Gracie's all the way from Texas going to talk about science reproducibility. She's going to talk about science reproducibility. Right, Gracie? <laughs> Yes, I'm going to say the word really slowly every time I say it as well. Yeah, reproducibility. Yeah, yeah. so uh, typically it's referred to as a reproducibility crisis that we have in science. So we're going to talk about what does it mean? What does the word reproducibility even mean? Uh, And then what contributes to this issue? And then what can we do about it? So there was a 2016 paper that was published in Nature that surveyed nearly 1,600 researchers. Over half of them said that there is a significant reproducibility crisis in science. So by that, 70% of the total number that responded to the survey said they were not able to reproduce other studies' findings. And 60% of them said they could not reproduce their own findings. Oh, that's that's a rough one, isn't it? Yeah, that's really high percentages. And this was 1,600 researchers across a lot of disciplines as well. So this wasn't necessarily one particular discipline. Um, And as I tried to find one official definition of reproducibility, it was just like going down a really dark rabbit hole. uh, And it just kept getting more and more complicated. So each kind of sub-discipline of science tends to kind of stick to their own definition of reproducibility. And so I was also finding that the words reproducibility and replicability are typically interchanged or used opposite depending on which discipline you're in, which is really interesting. So we can't even agree on what reproducibility means. Um, So there was actually a literature review in 2018 that uh, kind of highlighted this issue. And so this 2018 review basically came up with uh, this definition that most scientists tended to agree with. So it was reproducibility refers to instances in which the original researchers' data and computer codes are used to regenerate the results. Yep. So that's the definition that most people agree on, whereas replicability refers to instances where a researcher collects new data to arrive at the same research findings as a previous study. Right. So 
again, that's what most people agree on. Not not all disciplines agree on that, though. There's actually some subdisciplines in microbiology and immunology that have their own terms, and frequently they're switched. Those two terms. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think my PhD supervisor, when I was first starting, said when I was writing papers that someone should be able to reproduce our experiments from what was in our papers without having to contact us. I remember him saying that very specifically that it should have enough information that they could reproduce it in time from you know what we published. Right. And I remember getting the same training and some that kind of leads me into you know some issues that could contribute to this issue is uh, you know. Even during my PhD, I was running into things like, uh, even though the PI, my advisor, had said exactly what you just stated, some journals, most journals have word count limits. And so where do you want to, you know, divvy that up towards? Um, and then also the author may not want to detail all their methods so that they can stay competitive for mm. future grant funding coming off of that work, right? So that's a whole other issue that I was running into as well. Yeah, I had a paper that I was producing with another group uh, from another, another department once, and when they did the methods section which i'd been the sort of lead in i um i noticed that there were some errors and when i challenged them they said oh we we need to make sure that people don't reproduce this too quickly you know because we want to get a few papers out first and i said well uh, exactly then take my name off it and remove all my work from the paper or you know accurately report it and and they did of course after that conversation but it was interesting that that was their first go to was to actually leave things out so that others wouldn't be able to reproduce it Right. Yeah. And I'm also realizing as I'm going into my postdoc position as well. So my postdoc position is a lot more interdisciplinary than my PhD was. Um, and I'm also just realizing that different disciplines um, have different reviewers that tend to cater towards those different disciplines. So for instance, if my research is in biomechanics, if I was reviewing a biomechanics paper, I'd have very specific questions about how that part of the research was conducted. Mm. But if there's also an engineering component to the paper, I may not be asking the appropriate engineering questions. Um, yep. And so there, there could be some papers that maybe the engineering methods are a lot more detailed than the biomechanics or issues like this. It's a crisis, Has that Gracie. also been your experience? It's a crisis. Yeah, yeah look, it it's, that, that, yes. can, that can certainly be difficult. I think um, you know, my, my advice to people when I, I do training programs and that is to make sure that you write for as broad an audience as possible and sort of tier that structure. So, you know, you start off fairly broad and then you get more specific as you go through the document and you, you do get there at the end. Yeah. Ewan. Yeah, Gracie, I don't want to jump ahead, but I think it's such a really important topic. And, um, you know, in my field, I guess, sort of ecology and environmental science, there's been some really high profile cases in the last few years of suspected scientific fraud or, you know, malpractice, whatever you want to call it, depending on how bad the situation is. Uh, one is to do a researcher who researched spiders, and um, that's been really big news. Uh, and another looking at, um, you know, the effects of acidification on coral. Uh, and in both cases, well, in the case of the coral, the, the experiments couldn't be reproduced. And also in the case of the spiders, um, a, a lab member actually blew the whistle and wouldn't realise that there were some things going on that shouldn't have been going on. And I think, yeah, for me, there's sort of at least a couple of really important things going on with this. One is that uh, there are people that just do bad things in terms of scientific fraud um, and we need to be have things in place to pick that up and, and also protect the whistleblowers because, you know, you as a postdoc and so forth would appreciate this, that, you know, PhD students, postdocs and so forth, they're trying to build their career and to take on someone potentially who has all this power, that that's career-threatening. 
So there's that sort of side of it. But the other thing too is that unfortunately when you go to look for funding for grants and so forth, if you say I'm going to test out all these studies and we're going to do this but we're actually going to try and repeat these studies, almost no one will give you money. So, you know, the, the, trying, to, trying to actually rerun experiments because that's actually good scientific practice to do, um, the system's almost set up not to allow you to do that, which is, which is a really big problem. So Right. Yeah, definitely. That actually led me uh, straight into my next uh, issue as well is like journals don't like to publish things mm. that are not considered novel, right? Exactly. So it's, yeah, and just like you said, with grant funding, that's an issue as well. Um, and just like you said, fraud, I actually started getting into adding fraud to this episode. And I was like, you know, this could be a whole separate <laughs> A whole separate episode as well. Um, but there are also things kind of like what you were getting at, even in terms of, um, you know, there are people that just do really bad things, but there are also mm. things like cognitive biases yeah. that, you know, all of us have, um, like confirmation bias or something called a cluster illusion, which is when you uh, your brain is trying to automatically make patterns out of things, right? And mm. so that can get in the way as well. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think and another... also... Sorry, you go. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, I think another real challenge too is that, you know, if you're in a lab setup where you might be able to take a really reductionist approach and have a very controlled situation, maybe to, to rerun that experiment is, is less of a difficult task. Whereas, again, sort of related to my field where you might be doing what you call natural experiments and observations in the wild, it, it's really hard to find the exact same set mm. of conditions in the sense that the rainfall might be different, there might have been a flood, there could have been a fire... So to sort of repeat a study that's been done in the past under the sort of similar or almost the same environmental conditions is next to impossible as well. So sort of understanding how much of the change is an environmental problem versus, say, actually you've got a problem with the experiment or what you did. Again, that's a tricky one. That seems to me, to Gracie's earlier point, that seems to me to be kind of the reason you would want to have all your uh, all your methods and approaches in the paper, but if the paper if the journals are saying yeah no we're not interested in that, then it makes <laughs> the, the next researcher you know citing that paper or wanting to work from that or build from that is kind of left with I don't know I don't, I don't know what they're yeah. doing I don't know where to start. yeah absolutely you know you've got to be rigorous transparent and really detail things properly and unfortunately in the sort of cut and thrust of science sometimes where people are trying to push things out really really quickly. And some journals de-incentivize actually all those details. Yeah, you can see where we have these tr- these problems. Yeah. Right, and even and even on top of that, it's um, there are some methods that the researcher actually doesn't have control over. So, for instance, uh, the consistency of like the mice that are getting shipped to you for your experiments, and like you know what season that's even occurring in, uh, has been shown to have an effect on on certain experiments um, or things like reagents being certified properly. Um, I'm sure for Dr. Shane, maybe things like physics equipment. Yeah, lasers. We always want those. <laughs> well, it, no, but it does actually, uh, you know, you do you do rely on consistency and especially experiments that are done over long periods of time where you're ordering materials and components and those components just change their manufacturing over time. They may be getting better or cheaper to produce or whatever. That can actually have very substantial, um, you know, effects on what you're doing in the lab. So, it's a, it's a big issue, Gracie. We're almost out of time, but um, I think uh, just in the last 30 seconds, is, are, we, are we getting out of this anytime soon? Um, I don't think so, to be honest. It kind of sounds like, you know, the, the system needs to change as well. So, uh, mm. I mean, we can always be diligent on describing our methods in better ways. But, I mean, in terms of publishing negative data or uh, publishing raw data sets with our research, I think is really what can help. 
Yeah, certainly uh, if we sort of, uh, shall we say, de-businessify, is that a term? Uh, the journal system, that would probably help if it wasn't all about you know making money as it, it seems to be at the moment. And even universities just worrying about rankings more than anything else. If we can sort of pull back from some of that attitude, then I think um, we can restore some of the things that we need back in science in, in terms of making sure things are reproducible and so forth. Thanks so much, Gracie. Always uh, super interesting topics from you uh, that we love. Yeah, thank you. Folks, uh, we're almost out of time. Dr. Ewan, good to have you on the line as well. Thanks for having me. I hope you're feeling better. Chris KP, uh, you've been in the studio a lot lately. I have been. I'm liking it. It's good. (laughs) It's great to have you in the studio so much. Uh, It gets a bit lonely here sometimes when people are online. I was pretty lonely during the pandemic, I've got to tell you. You know, coming here every week and there was no one else around. But, uh, yeah, it's good to have people in the flesh. Big thank you to our guests for today. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and GoGo again this week. Folks, we will chat to you again with more science next week. But until then, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and I'll leave you with the wonderful team from Eat It for the next hour. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.